So are we ready? Okay. Um, Today I'm going to conclude our brief series on membership. Next week we'll talk more about the uh, holy days of Shavuot and Pentecost. Uh, But but I want to finish uh, this notion uh, of membership with the idea of mutual accountability. Our working definition of membership is that we are being an active part of a body or a group, not simply being on a list or a roster. And we looked at the various types of membership that we have, uh, the members of the body of Messiah, members of the people of God, and then congregational membership. And in our case, we have congregational membership where somebody is part of the congregation. We have associate membership where people are part of another congregation but interact regularly with us. And then we have corporate membership, which is really a legal membership that we use for the purposes of the IRS and rendering unto Caesar what is his. We looked at the requirements of being a member of the body and of the congregation, which is profession of faith by baptism and the annual covenantal commitment, which we do each Pentecost. Uh, Then we looked at the uh, idea of the expectations. I covered that last time, that the expectations that we have are related to the four functions of the congregation, worship or prayer, the liturgy services, the holy days, uh, discipleship or instruction, growing in grace and in knowledge, the fellowship of the body, ministering to one another and fellowshipping with one another in our regular lives, not just when we gather for a service. And then reconciliation, the trying to keep our relationships at peace with one another and healthy, and uh, dealing with judgment, that is, the idea of judgment being the idea of how do we live this way, making uh, discernment in that context. Uh, Today I want to explain why the membership in the Disciple Center is required to participate. Why why don't we have a lot of non-members in our midst? Uh, And the reason for that is based on the fact or the doctrine of mutual accountability. And I want to briefly address that and then talk about the implications of that. Uh, God created mankind to be relational and to be communal. We live, for the most part, in groups. And the primary institutions of household, which is marriage and family, and congregation, neighborhood, and community, uh, these groups are essential for our well-being and our growth. People who isolate themselves too much uh, tend to become uh, social misfits in some ways. Uh, But by being in community, we have implications. We benefit becomes a mutual benefit for us and we influence each other for the good. But we also bear the infirmities and the sins of each other and that's where the mutual accountability comes into play. Now, this doctrine of mutual accountability. I'm going to have trouble breathing here, I think. I don't have anything with me, so I'm okay. The uh, doctrine of mutual accountability is found in the scriptures, in the narratives, in the stories of the scriptures, in the commands of the scriptures, and in the rituals of the scriptures related to the covenants. So we're going to look at some of those. I'm just going to really do a surface 
thing on them just so that you know that it's there. There are many more that could be addressed. Uh, the first one is in Joshua chapter 7. And that chapter is a story that I'm hoping that most of you know. It's the story of Achan and Ai. Uh, when the children of Israel are moving into the promised land, uh, God talks to them and he gives them a commandment. And the commandment is that they are to uh, go against this city and they are to not uh, do anything to keep any of the spoils or the property. So they're not to covet anything that's there. They're not to keep anything that's there. Uh, and they are to uh, obey the Lord. What happens in chapter 7 verse 1 says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to to the things under the ban. Let me check and say, ah, oh, great, great, great. Excuse me. My eyes are watering too. <laughs> now, notice what it says. It says that the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Now, you would think by that verse that there are a bunch of them doing the wrong thing. As it turns out, there's one. One person is in disobedience, Achan. But God says that Israel has sinned. This is really an important concept. Achan was responsible for violating the commandment of God. And he is going to pay a serious price for that. He and his household. But God is going to bring judgment on all of Israel and tell them you will not be able to win the battle. You will not be able to move forward because Israel has sinned. They will then find him and find out the problem. They will judge him and deal with him because not only has he sinned against the Lord, but he's troubled all of them. And this begins to give us an understanding of individual and communal responsibility being Connected. This is really difficult for Americans to think. Americans really think about individual responsibility and individual privilege. We don't think about communal ones. And we actually believe that to be blamed for something that we didn't do is unfair. When the Southern Baptist Convention finally made a public statement about their place in the race relations of the time of the Civil War and following, and then the Civil Rights Movement. They were very problematic in the midst of that. Uh, there were people, when the confession was being made, who said, I didn't do it, and they didn't understand this doctrine of mutual accountability. If your group does something, you're part of that group, the group has an accountability. And you can't play the individual card in total exclusion. Now, the individual who actually does it has double guilt because they have the guilt of the group and the guilt of them as an individual. And Aiken was an example of that. But this is found also in the commandments and the rituals. So I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is one of, I think the most interesting rituals and passages in the scriptures related to the commandments. Uh, the commandment, thou shalt not murder. 
verse chapter 21 says this, verse 1. If a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess, and it is not known who struck him, then the elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. And it shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that the elders of that city shall take a heifer of the herd, which has not been worked and which has not pulled a yoke. So it's a valuable one. This is ready to be used. Uh, uh, And the elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest, the son of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. All the elders of the city which uh, are nearest to the slain man shall... Wash their hands over the heifer whose neck has been broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Check this out. They didn't do it. They didn't see anything. But they have to go through the ritual of acknowledging that and declaring their innocence before God in the presence of sin. Not simply a matter of saying, I'm not involved. But a communal responsibility in front of the priests with the elders present so that this thing is done before the Lord. So what we have is we have this notion of the group with mutual accountability, even though there's individual responsibility for sin in that context. Now the scripture goes on in many places to talk about this, but there's a particular passage that we're probably more familiar with found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the scripture says, it's actually reported that there is fornication among you, and a fornication of such a kind that does not exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Notice the difference? They're not doing what that passage says. They're just ignoring it. Their ideas, we're not, it's not me. And so he says, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, 
It's talking about the feast of unleavened bread. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now what is Paul talking about? He's saying, look, you've got somebody in your midst who's doing something, and I've even heard about it. And it's something that's not even going on in the world. And you guys are just ignoring it. You're just acting like it's not your problem. It's his problem. And I'm telling you it's your problem. So what I'm telling you is you get that person out of the community. You remove them. This is what excommunication is. You remove them from the community so that God will deal with them as he should. Because he's not going to do it in the community. He's going to do it out of the community. You remove him from the community. And hopefully his soul will be saved. God will deal with him. And he'll come back. In 2 Corinthians we find out that this man actually did repent. And then Paul says now. He's suffered enough. Restore fellowship to him. And so there is a basis of mutual accountability Inside the community, it's not that, well, it's none of your business, you should not judge. So Paul goes on and says these words, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with fornicators. I did not at all mean the fornicators of this world or the covetous, swindlers, idolaters. Then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. So this is a person claiming to be a believer. If he is a fornicator, a coveter, an idolater, a reviler, that means someone who blows up in anger and becomes violent, a drunkard or a swindler, you are not to even eat with that one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove that man from among yourselves. So the idea is that when a person needs the judgment of God, we move them out of our midst so that God will do that. Now, most of you know my background and my own rebellion. I didn't wait for people to excommunicate me in my arrogance and my stupidity. And my rebellion, I left those hypocrites and out I went, right? But God then got a hold of me, judged me, brought me back in that I could uh, be an object of his grace and his mercy and, and function in a way that is following after him. So this is the purpose. Even the excommunication is for the purpose of redemption and reconciliation. It's not punitive. The ultimate punitive is at the judgment in the next life. And we, we need to be ready to receive our punishment now, which is temporal, than the punishment then, which is eternal. In the same way, we want our reward then when it's eternal and not now uh, when it's temporal. So, this principle is found in the apostolic writings uh, uh, to the congregation uh, of both the Jews and the Christians who are following Yeshua. The removal of the violator from the congregation is to avoid communal responsibility because they are mutually responsible. It really is about understanding both individual and communal responsibility. Without a membership, Without an acknowledgement that we've made a covenant with each other. We have no right to speak to each other. Who the heck are you to tell me what to do? No, no. You gave up the right to function totally independent when you joined this congregation. 
And we have an obligation to hold each other and encourage each other. Our goal is to encourage each other in the right way, but we have an obligation when somebody is doing damage to themselves or to the reputation of the community to say, hey, you've got to knock this off or we're going to have to move you outside of that and you and God can deal with it. Now, as members of one another, we must be accountable to the community and to the elders under the direction of the Lord. This does not give the community or the elders authority over us in a cultic or authoritarian manner. It's a mutual submission to each other for the common good and the benefit as the people of God. It is to encourage us to move forward in faith and to protect the community from the leaven of sin. Which is why Paul brings up the issue of leaven, which you guys understand because we've just gone through unleavened bread. So the goal is reconciliation, not condemnation. It doesn't feel like reconciliation to the person that's being pushed out. But that's because in their arrogance, they want to stay where they are and they want you to allow it. And it makes you an enabler and we're not, we're not able to do that. So it's really an act of love, though it doesn't feel like an act of love. This is really what some people call tough love. Now in the book of Galatians, we are told... If a brother is overtaken with a fault, now what this means is it becomes manifest. The Bible makes a distinction between private sin and public sin. It doesn't make it where one is okay and the other is not okay. But in some sense, public sin is worse in that it affects the community uh, and it affects the reputation of the community. Private sin is still going to be judged. Jesus says some men's sins are known. Other men's sins follow them. Follow them where? To the judgment. So better again to have it dealt with temporally than to have it dealt with eternally. So, Paul says in Galatians, If a man is overtaken with a fault, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness considering your own self, lest you are also tempted. This is not a coming after, if if you know the old Frankenstein movies, when they were going to remove the monster from their midst. They came with torches and pitchforks and everything, you know, this wild crowd going after them. That is not what this is. This is a person whose heart is broken. This is almost parental. When you see your kid opposing himself and you want them to, you, but you're careful that you don't do it inappropriately. So there is a humility and a uh, awareness that we are also capable of getting caught in sin. If you think you can't be caught in sin, I wouldn't do that, then you're the wrong person to do the restoration in that context. <clears throat> the process for this is given to us in Matthew chapter 18. And I wish I had time to cover this entire uh, chapter because Jesus begins with this concept of humility. The disciples are asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he grabs a child and he says, you have to be as this child. Now, he's not talking about being innocent. 
He's not talking about being childlike in your faith. A child in that society had no voice and no place. They were the humblest of positions because everything was done for them and they were being instructed, they were told what to do and they had no real autonomy. He says, you want to be great? You have to be nothing. You have to humble yourself. You have to be meek. And that's the context of it. And after saying that, he says, now there are going to be problems, stumbling blocks. But woe to the person who stumbles one of these innocent, humble ones, right? Because again, the person who humbles themselves and then is taken advantage of, God says, I'm watching. Again, this notion of responsibility. It's in that context that the Lord gives the story of the 99 and going after the one who has uh, gone away. So again, see this reconciliation as the ultimate goal here, not condemnation. And then Peter says, well, how, how often do I have to forgive this guy? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven, right? The idea is that we're always seeking when the person turns the right way to reconcile with them. But if they won't turn the right way, we can't reconcile with them. We must stand aside, waiting for them to turn. Then we humbly reconnect uh, with them. So he gives the, the process for that and tells us uh, how to do this. And so he says, uh, if your brother sins, verse 15, go show him his fault in private. See the privacy? If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is done to make sure that his dignity is maintained and to do it in a humble manner. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every act, every fact may be confirmed. Now this is not finding two more people that you've told them what this guy's done and then they gang up on him. That will cause the person to react even more. This is to say to the guy, okay, you won't listen to me. Who in the congregation do you trust? Well, I trust this guy and this guy. Okay, then we're going to bring them in. I'm going to tell you what I think. You're going to give your response and they will make the judgment that I'm falsely accusing you or that you are wrong. And that's established. If he refuses to listen to them, then it comes to the church. And then the church will make a decision. Notice it, it becomes more and more public as it has to. Because if the person is allowed to continue in their sin, believe me, it will become public. That's just the nature of the beast. And so he says, if they will not listen to the church, then you are to treat them as a publican and a sinner. In other words, you remove them from the community in that context. Uh, and the idea is... That whatever you have bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on anything that they ask, it shall be done for them of my Father in heaven. Notice that this verse that's often pulled out of context is about 
the issue of excommunication and working through relationships. We are to always, as much as depends on us, live at peace with each other, but we do not condone and partake in other people's sins because that affects the community. So, one of the reasons that we have a membership and one of the reasons that we covenant to God and to each other once a year is to say that we are mutually beneficial to each other and we're mutually accountable uh, with and for each other uh, under the Lord. Now, mutual accountability is difficult for Americans, as I said, because our culture was established with the foundation of rugged individualism. That comes from our Greco-Roman origins and the Enlightenment influences that has even affected in some ways the way we interpret the Bible as a personal and individual faith in relationship to God. It's just me and God who cares about you. But the Bible doesn't teach that. I, for a long time, wished that it did. I wanted to be, it's about me and God and I don't care about the rest of you. And there are aspects in the scripture where that is true, where you are standing faithful with God against almost everybody. That's not usually our case, but it has happened like Josiah and God honors that. But for the most part, it is a communal faith. It is us and God. And we have to be aware that this individual relationship with God is not an isolated relationship with God. In the last 50 years, America has moved to an even more individualism, which I and others have called radical individualism. And this form is now permeating the church in the millennials and in the non-denominational churches and has dissolved the purpose and the practice of membership in many congregations. They simply don't have membership. Or they have a membership that says, if you think you're a member, you're a member. Which is no membership at all. Uh, they have a tendership. They don't have membership. And there is no accountability in that context. Now, as a result of this 50 years, many people prefer a no-membership congregation. And they prefer that because they are unwilling to be held accountable. Or... They think it's unnecessary, like those in the 60s who thought a marriage certificate is not necessary. We love each other. We're committed to each other. Who needs a piece of paper? My generation was full of people talking that way. Uh, those relationships didn't last long. Okay? There is something about commitment that is ritually and formally and covenantally made that, that brings us back to that covenant and part of that process. Some people are simply afraid of being accountable because they've been injured. These first two that I talked about are kind of narcissistic. These, the second one uh, are really not about being narcissistic. They're about being damaged. People are afraid of being accountable because they think people are going to be overly harsh on them. Or they're ignorant of the importance of this theology of accountability. Uh, so we have people who are arrogant in their autonomy from membership and we have people who are ignorant in their or, or afraid in their uh, context of that and that keeps a lot of people from being willing to join uh, I've had a lot of people say gee I really like the disciple center I'd love to come but I, ju I just won't I, I can't be part of that kind of intensity that you guys are in each other's lives and 
and you, you know you're accountable to each other and you helping I like to helping each other but I don't want you know I don't want the other so the disciple center was founded as a private judeo christian community of faith and we were establishing a group of households who would covenant together with each other as the biblically based community of mutual benefit and accountability and we take this seriously and we expect that those who attend regularly and participate to come under our mutual responsibility. And this is why we renew our covenant and our commitment to the Lord and to each other each year at Pentecost. Now we do allow for some limited period of time and for discussion purposes, those who are considering being a part of us, we allow them to attend and function as non-members for a time. In most cases, this lasts no longer than a year. Uh, we have had cases where it's lasted a little longer, but there's even a deadline with that. Uh, our goal is not to be elite or to be exclusive, but uh, to be obedient to God and the scriptures as we understand them. And those who think differently, generally I will encourage to find a congregation that thinks like them. Because if they think they're right, then they should be in a congregation that they go. I don't go to other congregations and try to change them to accommodate me. I join a congregation because I am of like mind and practice in that, in that context. So, uh, this is one of the things that has been an issue for us. Now, in addition to that, is the issue of people who uh, don't understand our expectations and then seem to move away and move away and move away. And we've got people who have been kind of maintained somewhat on our roles who we never see, uh, which we need to end. And I think that part of the ending of this is because as we move into the future where we don't know whether uh, there will be some difficulties or even some levels of persecution of who we are as a community. We need to maintain the boundaries and the privacy and the, and the integrity of the congregation because it is the exceptions that are generally used as precedents to go after people in those kinds of contexts. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen right away. I don't, uh, and I don't want it to happen. But we have to maintain that integrity in that context. So, the purpose of membership is to set a boundary around the congregation that allows us to function in a greater level of intimacy and trust with each other, and also a greater level of mutual accountability with each other, uh, much in the same way we do with our family and our extended family, uh, among those who are believers, so that we can fully follow the scriptures or more fully follow the scriptures as we walk with the Lord. And this is particularly important as we begin to raise a whole batch of children uh, in the admonition and nurture of the Lord, because if they see us not being serious about the things of God, they also will not be serious about the things of God. They, they usually take their cue about the seriousness of things 
based on our seriousness of it. The only time they reject that is if it makes no sense to them, which is why we want them to have an experience of understanding as they grow up in the midst of this context. So, that brings me to the end of this part. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and for what a community of faith is. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we move again towards this time when we recommit ourselves to you, we commit ourselves to one another to be a congregation, that we will do that in a way that is healthy and important, that is uh, according to your word, and that allows us the security and comfort of community with the accountability of community, not as a fearful thing, but as a thing that provides even a greater security uh, in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.